Section 4 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Course of Religious Opinion and Parties in England, 1500 to 1625, Part 2. In the age following Hooker, or during the reigns of the two first Stuart monarchs, the Church of England lost much of its original breadth and Catholicity. The growth of what is known as Anglo-Catholicism marks exactly the decay of the more genuine Catholic spirit which united the Church of the English Reformation to the other Reformed churches. It might almost seem as if James I and Charles I, both of them naturally of a small and irrational type of mind, had impressed something of their own narrowness and pedantry upon the Church and the theology of their day. It is certainly strange that a genius so rich and fine, and a cast of thought so truly noble as Hooker's, should have produced so little result. The Stuart divines, if they read him at all, only read him on one side of his mind, the patristic and controversial, which, when divorced from the higher philosophic side, loses all its life and true meaning. It is impossible to conceive writers with less real affinity to the great Elizabethan divine than Andrews or Dunn or Laud, or even Hall, Hammond, or Sanderson. The Anglo-Catholic theology, withal, is a genuine development of the Church of England, in some respects it is its most characteristic development, while no theological school has been adorned by a series of higher or more beautiful characters. It is the special line of thought by which the present church connects itself with the ancient Catholic hierarchy. Tolitur abusus maniat usus was the special motto of the English Reformation, and the spirit of the motto was, upon the whole, consistently maintained, notwithstanding the strong desire among some of the bishops, such as Sandus and Grindal, and even Jewell, to carry out more thorough and extensive changes. Footnote. In a letter to Peter Martyr, Jewell expressed a strong approval of the comparative thoroughness with which the Reformation was carried out in Scotland. All the monasteries, he says, quote, are everywhere leveled to the ground, the altars are consigned to the flames, not a vestige of the ancient superstition and idolatry is left. Close quote. Jewell's letters. End of footnote. The patristic element, again, was something different with the English reformers than with either Luther or Calvin, with all their deference to the Augustinian theology. Not only Augustine, but the fathers generally, both Greek and Latin, were constantly appealed to in the sacramentarian discussions, and also in the early phase of the controversy with the Puritans. On the former subject, as we have already seen, the greatest anxiety was manifested to adhere to the patristic language, even where it obviously covered a meaning beyond that which the English divine was disposed to accept. This is evident not only in Cranmer and Ridley, but also in Jewell with his wider and more liberal culture. The peculiar force which patristic authority retained over the minds of the English reformers cannot indeed be better exemplified than in the case of this writer, with all his broad and clearly rational tendencies. His defense of his apology against Harding bristles with patristic references from all sources, everywhere handled with the utmost reverence. Antiquity was therefore a distinct note of the Church of England from the beginning, and the fathers were in some sort recognized as authorized expositors of divine truth. This position is claimed for them in one of Archbishop Parker's canons in the year 1571, when the articles were finally settled, and the Reformation may be said to have reached its culminating point. Preachers are there admonished not, quote, to propound anything publicly as an article of faith, save only what is agreeable to the doctrine of the Old and New Testament, and to what the Catholic fathers and ancient bishops of the Church have collected out of holy writ. Close quote. Footnote. Parker's canons were subscribed by the bishops of both provinces, and are therefore a valid indication of the state of opinion in the Church, but they never received either royal or parliamentary assent, 
and grindal then archbishop of york in thanking parker for sending him a copy of them doubts whether in default of such sanctions they had vigorum legis stripes life of parker volume two page fifty seven and a footnote so far therefore the theological tendency of laud and his school may be traced back to the peculiar character of the anglican reformation as a definite system however anglo-catholicism did not emerge till the seventeenth century and the Anglo-Catholics, as a party, have no right to claim the inheritance of the Church of England. They are really the successors, and not the precursors, of the Puritans, and if they followed out certain features of the old national party, and so far became their representatives, they yet did so in a very different spirit. The original advocates of the Church of England, via media, fought their battle, upon the whole, with the weapons of reason and fair scriptural inquiry. And nothing more honorable can be said of them in such a time. They had no exclusive theory of divine right, and their sacerdotalism, so far as it existed at all, was traditionary and not dogmatic. If not latitudinarian, they were never destitute of a certain intellectual breadth. But the age was too troublesome, and men too impatient and violent, to appreciate such an attitude as this. The Puritans were felt to have a certain advantage with the popular and even the ordinary theological mind in the very narrowness of their theory. It was understood of all that nothing was to be in the church which was not commanded in scripture that an explicit divine command or jus divinum must settle everything was a very obvious ready-made and effective if somewhat coarse weapon of controversy it might satisfy men like hooker or even whitgift to say no rational expediency in matters of church government is the only law and the highest law we can have but men like bancroft were not content to maintain their cause with such reasoning they saw how a theory of divine right carried itself with the popular mind, which, in the second decade before the close of the century, was violently agitated by the Martin Marprelate pamphlets against the bishops and the English hierarchy generally. In these pamphlets, the scriptural theory of Presbyterianism, with many other popular arguments, was ventilated with a lively, if rough and vulgar, humor. In such circumstances it was that Bancroft conceived the great polemical idea of turning the tables upon the Puritan Presbyterians by the assertion of a converse theory of divine right on behalf of episcopacy, in his famous sermon at St. Paul's Cross in February 1588. The conformists, it is said, quote, were amazed at the novelty of the doctrine. The Puritans were confounded with the boldness of the claim. Whitgift said he did not believe the doctrine to be true, but he wished that it were. Close quote. When this counter-dogmatism was once started, it gained rapid ground. It addressed not only the popular intelligence, to which a ready-made dogmatism is always the best form of argumentative assertion, but it commended itself to higher minds than Bancroft, such as Saravia, Hooker's friend in his later years, and Thomas Bilson, afterwards Bishop of Winchester, and gradually it worked itself into the whole texture of the controversy with the Puritans. Apostolical order, a use divinum of episcopacy, arising out of the supposed direct sanction of the apostles in the close of the first century, became the watchword of the one party, as scriptural purity was the watchword of the other. Or, more particularly, the exclusive authority of a threefold ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons, became the special theory, or raison d'etre, of the Anglo-Catholics, against the tetrarchy, or fourfold order, doctors, pastors, elders, and deacons, of the Puritans. Thus, at the end of the sixteenth century, emerged the rival dogmatisms which were destined to such fatal conflict. With the accession of James I, these dogmatisms are seen confronting one another in the Hampton Court Conference as elsewhere, conscious of their mutual dislike, but as yet unconscious of the sanguinary issues which were to come from their rivalry. It is not our business to sketch the course of their relations to one another, or to apportion betwixt them the responsibilities of the struggle which ensued. 
that the deadliest elements of this struggle however lay in the womb of these rival theories admits of no question all the reflective minds of the time felt this from hales to hobbes political complications an insane abuse of the royal prerogative and a tyrannous exercise of the executive functions both of church and state all helped to bring the long-continued struggle to a crisis but it was the hate and determination engendered by religious fanaticism on both sides that made the fierce background of the struggle and compelled it to be fought out to its bitter end hobbes was wrong in seeking to avenge the national confusions upon the religious principle itself by virtually extirpating it or what comes very much to the same thing by subordinating it entirely to the civil authority but he was not wrong in ascribing the train of calamities which overtook the country to its aggressive and high-handed violence on the one side and the other it remains for us only farther in this chapter to describe somewhat more fully the characteristic principles and attitude of the rival dogmatisms and then to point out the special causes which contributed to the formation of a third or liberal party betwixt the two or in other words to the reappearance in a definite and progressive form of the rational religious spirit in which the english reformation had started and of which it had already in hooker produced so splendid an example one the anglo-catholic system while narrow in theory and capable both of violent and of vulgar manifestations yet presents many aspects of speculative and literary interest it has had the power through all its history of captivating many fine interesting and original minds while in its highest developments it often loses not indeed its bigotry but all which makes bigotry offensive and dangerous it is grounded on a strange illusion of a golden patristic age when christian teachers reverently termed fathers enjoyed special advantages of interpreting and declaring divine truth the church of england is supposed to inherit the continuous tradition of this golden age under the name of catholicity while protesting along with the other reformed churches against the abuses and perversions of rome it has yet according to this theory kept clear of either german or genevan extremes it threw off the usurpations of the papacy and translated with modifications the old ritual into the common tongue it remedied various errors of doctrine and of practice which had crept in during the ages of darkness and corruption but it has preserved unimpaired the sacredness of the apostolic succession the deposit of catholic truth and the sweetness and grandeur of the ancient prayers the prestige dignity and spiritual authority of the anglican church descend with unbroken force from the canterbury mission and the supreme catholic church which it represented the ideal of anglo-catholicism is not the primitive church as it is seen emerging in its rude simplicities from the synagogue or as pictured in the touching symbolism of the catacombs it is the church of the fourth and fifth centuries with its elaborated creed and full-grown splendor the orthodox athanasian church illustrated by great names and strong in its possession of the truth against the arians and others who had threatened its life to ascend to this catholic time with any doctrine or usage is sufficient and indeed the most sufficient warrant either can have the statements of the christian writers who then instructed the church possess an exceptional value and are examined and expounded with a deferential regard only second if indeed second to those of scripture itself the great ecumenical councils which were held during the same period command special admiration and their decisions are received with special reverence and faith the great aim of the school is not to reach the primary ideas of christianity and trace their growth downwards to show for example how athanasianism developed from a simpler or less systematized creed but reading upwards from the great era of catholic orthodoxy to vindicate even the technical subtleties and barbaric exclusiveness of the symbolum quiconque in the earlier christian remains its method in short is essentially and in all things dogmatic yet with a touch of conciliatory breadth which never fails to come from historic studies and the recognition of historic difference or dogmatic growth in any form 
the anglo-catholic theologian not only rests upon authority but delights to do so he works out all his conclusions on assumed data no less truly if not so entirely as the medieval theologian did he starts from recognized principles he does not go in quest of them the truth is for him already found and deposited not to be found or inquired after he is content and proud to inherit the wisdom of the past and to be the heir of catholic thought and catholic worship through many ages christianity is not for him characteristically a divine philosophy nor yet a spiritual life but a dogmatic treasure an heirloom of the ancient divine family which has gathered the good and orthodox of all generations into its bosom and he sits reverently at the feet of the great names who have exhibited and transmitted its power or shone with its beauty since it came into the world even when we see in this type of theologian a rare force or charm of mind it is not so much capacity of inquiry or pure love of truth for its own sake that is developed as largeness of faith and receptive power of thought that which has come along the golden links of catholic tradition and association not the result of his own research but a consecrated continuity of opinion he loves and defends he rationalizes little never if he can help it even when his sweep of argument is boldest and his reason takes its highest flight this anglo-catholic tendency it is almost needless to say has more than once in the course of its history shown an inclination towards romanism it has in some of its brightest examples lost its distinctive national character and returned into the bosom of the older catholicism from whose corruptions it professed to have separated in times of excitement and agitation of the principles lying at its foundation this is inevitable but it would nevertheless be a grave mistake to confound the general movement with these occasional vacillations the movement has in itself both a distinct dogmatic and historical life and is not to be identified with romanism even if it be true that its principles lead thither when pushed to their logical consequences the great lines of religious faith in a country are not to be classified and still less exhausted by any applications of logic and if on the one hand anglo-catholicism has sometimes inclined to romanism it has also and never more strongly than in the seventeenth century shown an inclination towards liberalism this is one of the strange anomalies with which we meet in religious developments puritanism which began in impulses of liberty and which through all its history has been so associated with the assertion of political independence and the rights of conscience has yet always been intolerant of dogmatic differences in the seventeenth century it manifested this intolerance in an extreme degree from no quarter did the liberal theological spirit receive more discountenance or more fervent denunciation and resistance on the other hand the high church party while servile in spirit and tyrannic in the exercise of constituted authority is found and eminently so in the case of its most notable representative extending patronage to the earliest of our rational theologians all these theologians came out of the bosom of the party and continued more or less closely associated with it and even in the case of some of the most distinctive of the anglo-catholic theologians themselves there are traces of a certain freedom of thought on purely theological matters a certain libertas opinandi as halen says on points of philological and scholastic divinity some truths he adds are found in each school but not all in any the statement has the touch of the liberal and eclectic party so that if romanism may be said to lie in wait for anglo-catholicism on one side there is a sense in which latitudinarianism springs from it on another two puritan dogmatism again rests or is supposed to rest on direct scriptural authority it appeals simply and absolutely to the divine word which it identifies with scripture its watchword is not only scripture as an ultimate authority or rule of faith for in this respect all forms of protestantism may be said to agree with it or at least did agree with it in the seventeenth century but scripture as an infallible dogmatic code 
it has never fairly faced and during that century it was not even conscious of such questions as what is scripture and what is the relative dogmatic import of its several books the bible presents itself to the puritan as a uniform manual of doctrine and duty an absolute law of truth and right in which his own system is plainly and authoritatively laid down his special dogmas are supposed to be mere transcripts of its letter he ignores and has always ignored the idea of dogmatic and ecclesiastical development st paul appears to him to speak with as clearly a predestinarian voice as st augustine and the presbyterian platform to be as clearly revealed as the levitical economy he has found even the ruling eldership in a text of the pastoral epistles all the teaching of life the experience of history the accumulations of catholic ordinance and ritual have with him comparatively no divine meaning he is careless of the venerable associations and harmonizing beauties which christian opinion has gathered during the long lapse of the christian centuries the catholic church and its traditions if they are regarded at all are regarded with no enthusiasm what the fathers have written is an altogether secondary or irrelevant question he sets aside all as a dim and imperfect twilight of tradition to look straight at scripture and catch the divine truth in its clear daylight its formal enunciations and prescriptions alone are presumed to guide him to the law and to the testimony is his invariable appeal it is difficult to conceive a more complete antagonism to the anglo-catholic theory even when the theological conclusions of the two schools may not greatly differ their modes of argument and of exposition widely disagree the thirty-nine articles cannot be taken as a characteristic specimen of anglo-catholic theology they were framed before the emergence of its distinctive dogmatic spirit and have indeed constituted a main difficulty to the most pronounced adherents of the school who have sought by various glosses to harmonize them with catholic doctrine but such as they are they exhibit a marked difference to the full-grown type of puritan theology as presented for example in the canons of the synod of dort or the chapters of the westminster confession of faith in the one there is present everywhere a touch of moderation the softening influence of a conciliatory doctrinism which is true to the positive aspects of augustinianism and the evangelical import of the great questions raised by the reformation but which yet shrinks for the most part from all negative and extreme deductions their meaning is calvinian but the logic of calvinism is sparingly used and a dogmatic scripturism does not obtrude itself in the other all generality and scriptural manifoldness have disappeared the concrete has become abstract the statement of fact has been transformed into the process of ratiocination and the negative polemical side of almost every truth is set forth in clearer sharpness and definition than its positive substance dogmas are rigorously carried out to their consequences and the intellect and conscience alike are assailed by the coercive authority with which these consequences in their most theoretic relations are expressed and enforced above all the letter of scripture is itself turned into logic and the divine idea living and shapely in its original form is drawn out into hard and unyielding propositions nothing is more singular nor in a sense more impressive than the daring alliance thus forced betwixt logic and scripture the thought and the letter the argument and the fact are inwrought this identification of scripture with its own forms of thinking was of the very essence of puritanism and gave it something of its marvellous success in an age when argument was strong and criticism weak to do justice to puritanism it must be admitted that it did not only bring its ideas to scripture but supposed that it found them there st paul appeared to speak to it with its own voice to be a dogmatist of its own type calvinism was only christianity reduced to a system it was the divine thought articulated in human language calvinian speculation has always this true element of sublimity in it 
it soars directly to the throne of god and seeks to chain all its deductions to that supreme height but it fails to realize how far men's best thoughts are below this height and how much human weakness and error must mingle in the loftiest efforts to compass and set forth divine truth dogmatic puritanism was the offspring of an uncritical and polemical age when men theologized as they fought with no scruples and no tenderness towards opponents and this hard and one-sided spirit survives in it it barely recognizes even now in the sphere of theology that truth is not all on one side it still looks with jealousy on that more tolerant spirit both of faith and of criticism which labors to distinguish the essential from the accidental and so to penetrate and sift all systems as to lay bare the multiplied influences of time place and character which have mingled in their production and stamped and colored them with their own impress and hue it shrinks from the critical impartiality which exposes everywhere the purely human side of christian doctrine and clings obstinately to ideas of compensation forensic imputation and covenants as being of the very essence of the divine truth original elements of the primitive christian consciousness it matters not that the origin of such ideas can be distinctly traced outside of scripture as temporary conventionalities or transitory habits of human speculation it delights to identify them with the divine meaning and parting with them is as if parting with the very substance of divine revelation in its later ecclesiastical or presbyterian form puritanism cannot be said to connect itself directly with the english reformation for in the first instance there was no question of abandoning the historical polity of the church of england none of the earliest reformers entertained this thought or supposed that there was anything incompatible betwixt scripture and the hierarchy of offices into which this polity had grown yet in such men as tyndale and latimer and hooper and ridley we see something of the same dogmatic scripturism of which puritanism was only the full development the bare text of scripture is with them a final appeal and although they accepted the anglican system there is little doubt that if they had been allowed their own way they would have greatly modified it if not enamoured like cartwright and others after the marian persecution with the genevan model they were yet entirely free from catholic predilections they cared little or nothing for the external dignity and historical associations of the church and earnestly desired a reduction of its mediaeval ceremonies they were therefore puritans before puritanism and the name had come into vogue before the party can be said to have been formed as anglo-catholicism links itself with the church before the reformation with a proud sense of its ancient lineage puritanism connects itself with the reformation as its most characteristic outgrowth although both in their definite form were really later developments this side of english religious thought grew and hardened by the very means taken to check and destroy it the continental experience of the english reformers when driven abroad in the reign of mary tended greatly to encourage and strengthen it the hostility of elizabeth and james I the vacillations of the archbishops now as in the case of bancroft violently denouncing and opposing it and again in the case of abbott temporizing with and favoring it the pettiness and ignorance of the authorities generally and their small and incessant interferences contributed to nurse its irritations foster its surly independence and give point to its zeal whether the two sides of thought if left alone to their natural working would have come to understand one another and so have kept the peace if not coalesced it is needless to conjecture there are some indications that they might have done so there were statesmen in england like lord keeper williams who could look with indifference on their antagonism and hold the balance fairly betwixt them footnote bishop of lincoln and chief ecclesiastical adviser in the last years of james End of footnote. if williams had not been supplanted by laud at the accession of charles and the dogmatic fever propagated under the unhappy rule of the latter prelate to its fiercest height affairs might have taken a different course but laud forced the evil genius of the time 
in him were unluckily concentrated all the intensities of one side not only in an exaggerated and narrow but in an intensely aggressive attitude not destitute of generous and liberal qualities as he has been sometimes painted nor even without a certain breadth of dogmatic sympathy he was yet wholly deficient in largeness of mind or any real insight into the thoughts of others the strength and earnestness of spiritual convictions differing from his own were unintelligible to him and so he hardly realized the difficulties with which he had to deal not only his policy his schemes for procuring uniformity and decency of external worship but his very nature his watchfulness and the pettiness and persistency of his interferences proved an irritant of the worst kind footnote all that i labored for in this particular he said when charged on his trial with introducing popish ceremonies quote, was that the external worship of god in this church might be kept up in uniformity and decency and in some beauty of holiness Close quote. End of footnote. Slowly but surely, during those years when he and his master and Wentworth may be said to have governed alone, the crisis was ripening. The religious consciousness of Puritanism, far from being subdued, deepened to a darker hue, and gathered a firmer tenacity. Instead of being weakened, it grew strong under oppression, and, adding to its strength, intensity, deliberateness, and a gradually kindling fierceness, it braced itself for the struggle, and nursed a wrath which was to be terrible in its vengeance. 3. It was so far a natural result of the attitude of these respective systems, facing one another in unyielding antagonism, that a third or middle party should spring up. Thoughtful men on either side could not but be visited with misgivings as to the effects of such an antagonism, and the futile and miserable controversies which arose from it. They were driven by the very discomforts of the ecclesiastical position to consider whether there was not a more excellent way than that presented by either extreme moreover it was the direct tendency of the controversies between the two sides to raise fundamental questions as to the constitution of the church the nature and importance of doctrinal differences and the relations of authority and freedom within the limits of the national communion so far therefore the liberal movement was born naturally out of the oppositions we have described it came forth a new element out of the theological fullness of the time a few reflective minds pondering over the distracted condition of the church and the country and wearied with the ceaseless contention between puritan and anglo-catholic struck their line of thought deeper than either and brought into view a wider set of principles in the light of which the old antagonism seemed hollow and false getting below the dogmatic basement of both the structures which had been reared upon them crumbled away and there was opened up the fair prospect of a higher structure a church more true than either had conceived more divine because more simple and comprehensive but there were two special causes which contributed to the origin of the new movement a as we have already indicated the influence of arminianism and b the aggressions of popery a arminianism was at first by no means welcomed in england the church moderately but decidedly augustinian in its theology looked with hostility upon the liberal movement in holland james i professed to be a strong calvinist and when the synod of dort was convened sent to it as is well known a deputation from the church of england to countenance and strengthen the calvinists against the remonstrance this they did but the effect of their visit and still more the visit of one who was not a member of the deputation but who had accompanied the english ambassador to the hague was different from what was intended the proceedings of the synod however favorable to the calvinian party were highly unfavorable to dogmatic peace and christian concord the questions supposed to be settled when transferred to an english atmosphere were discussed over again with very different results in the case of many of the most active-minded and influential of the clergy 
james himself although he did not formally abjure his calvinism was perplexed by the manifestations of the new doctrinal spirit those among the clergy who began to incline to arminianism were found by him the most favorably disposed to his favorite ideas of royal prerogative while the puritans were all strict calvinists and much as he loved calvinism he loved servility and the principle of passive obedience still more thus it was that even before the accession of charles and the date of laud's influence the current of royal favor had begun to flow steadily towards the novel doctrines and those who espoused them so far arminianism became in england merely another form of dogmatism it passed in fact into the anglo-catholic movement as its theological background and gave to it a party meaning and consistency which it had not hitherto possessed it became along with popery a subject of parliamentary complaint the high church and the puritan parties were henceforth divided theologically as well as ecclesiastically and the dogmatism of montague and of laud himself was more resolved while really less intelligent and devout than the calvinism of abbott but arminianism was we have seen a great deal more than a mere system of doctrines it raised wherever it spread a new spirit of religious inquiry it opened up large questions as to the interpretation of scripture and the position and value of dogma altogether and in short diffused a latitudinarian atmosphere the liberal impulses which it thus helped to communicate to a few thoughtful minds in england will be abundantly evident in the course of our volumes b but strangely also the very activities of popery at this time served to quicken in england a new seed of thought the roman church had never lost the hope of winning back the english crown and people to its old catholic allegiance it had never even after the death of mary and the defeat of its great champion philip of spain quite abandoned its intrigues for this purpose and now in the last years of james and especially following the marriage of charles with a catholic princess it renewed its efforts with redoubled zeal flushed by the success of the jesuits on the continent and well informed of the prevalent ecclesiastical divisions it sent its emissaries throughout england under feigned names everywhere to foment the disunion of the two parties and to insinuate the claims of roman catholicism as the only remedy for the distractions of controversy and the only means of establishing a stable theology and church order many of the higher classes as in more recent times were won over by the seductions of these clever and polished polemics buckingham's mother became a pervert as early as sixteen twenty two and buckingham himself seemed on the eve of yielding to quote, the continual cunning labors of fisher the jesuit and the persuasions of the lady his mother close quote. footnote laud's own statement in his speech to the lords sixteen forty three he mentions no fewer than twenty cases of such perverts or waverers whom by god's blessing upon his labors he succeeded in settling in the true protestant religion see as to the extent of the romanizing influence at this time in england hallam's constitutional history volume two pages sixty six and sixty seven tenth edition masson's milton volume one page six thirty eight at sequins end of footnote laud claimed the credit by god's blessing of rescuing him as well as many others from their danger and especially as is well known of bringing back chillingworth to the bosom of the church of england the fact that a mind like chillingworth's was entangled by the thickly sown sophistries is enough to show how powerful they were and how ingenious and seasonable their adaptation to the intellectual and spiritual atmosphere of the time but the very stress of the jesuit arguments opened the way for a more rational theory of religion the necessity of an infallible church was their great point how could men believe aright without some certain guide how could the form of the church be settled without some power to settle it it was the pressure of such questions that drove minds like falkland and chillingworth to examine the whole subject of authority in religion and to work it out to its only consistent and reasonable conclusion 
thus as also in later times the wave of rational and of jesuit thought met in collision the aggressions of the one serving to evoke the full strength and life of the other end of chapter two part two